Welcome to the Expats in Dubai show, your home for deeper news, behind the scenes and real life stories. Hello, it's Amber Wahid and welcome to the Expats in Dubai show. So we pick up the story after my visit to the local regulators, the Dubai Financial Services Authority and the Dubai Insurance Authority in episode 14 in the Great Ford Fightback series. The next step, the only step I could think of, was to take our suspicions about Neil Grant to the local police and talk with the police and get them to press Grant for some answers. It was a bit of a long shot, but whatever else, it would be worth having a go. I just felt I had no other choice as Grant was not giving anything away. But proof, what proof did I have? Well, at this point, nothing. So I arrived at the police station intending to just show up and see what happened. So far, that strategy had actually worked for me. Ultimately, I believed I would be turned away. It was always going to be difficult to prove some wrongdoing had taken place. Grant didn't force us to do anything. He made us all complicit in our own undoing. He didn't steal from us. He didn't threaten us. He didn't put money in his own pocket. We gave money willingly. That was the reality. And now I was going to explain this to someone, hoping they may just get it. Early morning, 7.30am, I learned fast was the best time to visit a police station. There's hardly anyone around and the officers themselves are fresh and in a jolly mood because you've just grabbed them after a hearty breakfast. I entered the reception area of the station to see a police officer sat at the desk listening to members of the public and their grievances. One by one, he directed them to various offices. It was all very robotic and businesslike. The mood of the police station is always one of total patience. Sometimes people must wait for hours before an officer gets a chance to take care of them. But unlike Britain, they never so much as tap their feet or complain or roll their eyes in exasperation. There's just a different standard here for good behaviour in front of authorities. I was ushered into a simple office with whitewashed walls. There were just two police officers in an olive green shirt and trousers, sat at two tables at the back of the room in front of a row of folding chairs. The office consisted of one large room, so there was no possibility of closing a door for some privacy. That morning, I was third in the waiting line. The first guy was immediately directed to the civil courts after being told after just two minutes into his story that his complaint was not criminal. He accepted the outcome and promptly left. The second guy in front of me was an Irish, well-dressed young businessman. His issue was something to do with credit cards. Whilst he was being questioned, I was called to the second officer. I started to explain what happened, but two minutes into it, I could see the officer was already lost. Too much alien information and too difficult to wade through it. He tells me it's a civil case. I tell him no, it's criminal. I wasn't about to let him fob me off like he did to the first guy. Then he got right to the point and asked, where is the contract? Now it was going to get tricky. The case was not black and white and for a start there was no contract between Grant and myself. My contracts I had learned were directly with the financial institutions holding my trust and my policy, not with my financial advisor. It was the same situation for all of Neil Grant's clients. The officer is clearly confused at this point and he asks me, which part is criminal? You gave him the money and you say you have no contract with him. Then he goes on to say investments, you win, you lose, here you lose. And he punched the desk with each word he said. He had a wonderful talent of just keeping things simple. No crime was his final say with the final fist punch of the desk. And he's looking past me, signalling that the conversation is over. So I try again. 
and I make it clear to him that there's the mis-selling and the mismanagement, and Grant invested my money in things for his own benefit, to make money for himself, and that's what I want him to investigate. Then he asked me, so you're saying fraud? And I said no, because there was certainly nothing to suggest fraud. At that point, that idea had not entered anyone's mind, and I said I just wanted him to ask Grant some questions of how he managed my investments and why I lost it all. He held his hands open wide as he asked, on what reason am I going to call him here? He started to repeat himself. You gave him the money. You have no contract. Where is your contract? That is a complicated question. I agreed with him. How do you explain something you do not understand yourself? How did I not have a contract with Grant? How had I missed that? In fact, I couldn't find any paper trail between Grant and myself linking him to me as my financial advisor, which was in itself utterly bizarre. Because I couldn't answer, the policeman was getting distracted again and he wanted to move on. I understood. He saw it as a frivolous complaint and that was going to take up time and cost money and had no shred of solid evidence that will even help the case. Finally, when he realised I wasn't budging, He told me to go to office number nine and speak to the manager, whom I guessed was his boss. Tell him your story, he told me. And with that, I was dismissed. If it got me to the next step, I liked his approach. It turned out there were two levels of approval required before a criminal case is referred to the director and head of the station for final approval and before it can be transferred to the prosecution office in the police station and then on to public prosecution who ultimately decides if the case is to proceed before a judge in court. I was already at step two. Officer Salah was the name painted in dark red on the door of office number nine and he was sitting at his desk with his back to the window when I entered his office. The room was spacious and white with the cluttered dusty look that one would expect to find in a police officer's room. He wore a different uniform to the previous officer, dark cream with badges on the collar reflecting his high rank with a number of medals across his chest. And he greets me in Arabic and then asks, what can we do for you? And I explain that I'm in a rather urgent situation and I had to tell my whole story again. And he allowed me to tell my story at my own pace. After I finished, The officer spoke using almost identical language to the previous officer. Where is the contract? I didn't have one. There wasn't a contract between us. You gave him money and there's no contract? You gave him money just like that? His eyes widened in pure wonderment. Yep, I said just like that. I had already endured my fair criticism from the regulators and yes, experience was thrown away. Common sense was withdrawn. And then he asks me, what do you want me to do about it? For the next 20 minutes, I argued my case with the officer, who just wasn't budging, his arms permanently folded across his chest. But unlike the previous officer, he was really trying to understand why I thought I had a case and seemed to be amused by it. I pretty much felt that I was this weird creature to them with this bizarre belief that a crime had taken place. Have you tried dealing with the other person directly, he asked. I said he's not responding to anything. And then he said, this is not a police issue. Of course it's a police issue, I told him. He's mismanaging our money. He lets out a deep sigh and I know he's about to end the conversation. So I gave it one last go and I just laid it out there and I kind of bargained with him, respectfully. Look, sir, I respect you and I respect your position, but I promise you I'd not waste your time if I thought I did not have a case against him. It's not just a thought I had rolling out of bed this morning and I need you to investigate him. We can't just let this go. We can't just ignore it. 
If you then decide there's no case, I will accept it. But we at least have to try. I sincerely hoped that he would understand because this thing had to be resolved one way or the other, in part so I could move on. So his chewing over what I said probably amused that I had given him my opinion of what I thought he should do, but he bore it all with a bit of a smile. He tapped his finger against his temple and straightened his glasses and sighed, but I really don't understand why you think we might be able to help you. He needed some sort of concrete lead in order to move forward with an investigation. Caught between his instinct for caution, his urge to help, and his reluctance to point me in what might be a futile direction of hope. Finally, he relented and said he would ask Grant to come to the police station to answer a few questions, but I would have to give a full statement. Did I have a problem with that? I said no, no problem at all. In fact, if it was official, they would have to follow through on the complaint. I was so happy at this point. So I had to go back to the first officer, who was perplexed to say the least when I gave him the message. He's looking at me as if to say, are you kidding? He was not expecting to see me again, that was clear. He actually picked up the phone to his manager to get confirmation that his leg wasn't being pulled by this obviously deluded woman sitting in front of him. And I must confess, I rather enjoy his breezy, unselfconscious style. Finally, he put down the receiver and said, OK, sit. And then he turned all professional whilst I gave him my statement, which he duly entered into the computer, tapping away as I spoke. The whole process took some 20 minutes. After I finished, he printed off the paper, and I was asked to sign it. It was all in Arabic, and as I don't read Arabic fluently, I had no idea what he had just written, and how much of what I said he had actually captured. For all I knew, he had just typed out his wife's shopping list. I signed the paper, gave it back to him, he glanced at it, and put it in his drawer. Okay, we'll call him, he told me. And then I asked, we'll call you, he said. As simple as that. I really wanted to ask him when I would expect to hear from him, but I could see that the officer had no intention of saying anything more at that moment. Yes, it was a result. More than I expected, actually. Grant at least needed to answer some questions. He couldn't get off totally scot-free. By now, the police station had filled up. People were walking around and many had their Arabic translators with them. And I had a feeling that if I had a translator with me, I probably wouldn't have got the result that I did because the officers would have spoken directly to them and not to me. And they can dismiss a lot of things a lot quicker that way, especially with the minimal evidence I was offering. As I left the police station, my phone rang. It was Nathan. Nathan, if you remember, is the guy and a friend of Neil Grant's who had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars investing his money with him. Now my story took an unexpected turn because he was calling to tell me that we were actually dealing with fraud. And I was lost for words. I couldn't believe it, just couldn't believe it. I always thought that maybe there was a good explanation for what Grant was doing with our investments and that it wasn't fraud or something less criminal. Fraud sounded so deceitful and calculating and something I had never really had to deal with and it completely changed the situation. Worryingly, I had just given my statement 10 minutes before on the subject of mismanagement and I had not mentioned fraud of any nature, something Grant's lawyers later pounced on in trial. My first thought was, how does his actions become fraudulent? This is the breakthrough and it's all down to Nathan. If Grant's present seemed blissful, his past was rapidly catching up on him. During all this time whilst I'd been visiting the regulators and the police, Nathan had been meandering around Grant's business affairs and had done some hard digging of his own into his former friend and advisor, presenting a view that differed from Grant's official narrative, and this is where all the pieces fell into place. I had sent Nathan the email that Grant had sent to me with his company license details on it, 
and he was distracted by the two companies Grant had mentioned in his email. He noticed Prosperity Offshore Investment Consultants was operating from the same office address as Prosperity Management Consultancy. There appeared to be two companies under two licenses at the same office address, first at the business centre in the Dubai Hotel and then in offices in Business Bay. His curiosity had led him to the DED website, DED, of course, the Department of Economic Development, the government body that registers companies and provides companies with the appropriate business license. Although Grant had set up a company called Prosperity Offshore Investment Consultants, there was no record of it with the DED. It simply did not exist. It transpired that the company trading as Prosperity Offshore Investment Consultants was actually registered with the DED as Prosperity Management Consultancy under the same license number, active from July 2004 until July 2016. So what was Prosperity Management Consultancy? One thing for sure, the list of activities they were legally allowed to do under their business license did not include managing money or advising on money. The activity they were legally allowed to do was management consultancy only. But advisory meetings and paperwork signing for financial advice and documentation signing for financial products all took place with partners and clients, including ourselves, in the Dubai offices of Prosperity Management Consultancy. All correspondence showed that Prosperity Management Consultancy was operating as an offshore company based in Dubai. In order to carry out financial advisory services, financial planning and recommendations on savings and pension planning policies and taking commission from policy providers from these recommendations, the company have to have the DED activity, financial analysis and consultancy. To double check this, Nathan had researched other companies who carried out financial advisory services to see what activities they had on their licenses. He went through all the entities one by one. The activities were all the same, financial analysis and consultancy. None of the financial advisory consultancies operated under the activity of management consultancy. It was like a Polaroid getting clearer as you watch it develop. What this meant was that Prosperity Management Consultancy had been acting wholly outside of the boundaries of their registered activity with the DED and were acting in the capacity of financial advisor and financial broker based in Dubai. Now it was blindingly obvious Grant was misusing his license. He has set up Prosperity Management Consultancy, but as he was unable to obtain a financial advisory services license, he deceptively traded as Prosperity Offshore Investment Consultants to make investors think they were an investment company. In legal terms, this is license fraud. But our case, there was another layer to this. We had been given what we considered bad advice by Grant on which funds to sign up to, and we believed that this advice was provided predominantly on the basis of generating commission for Grant, where the funds recommended generated high commissions for him. This bad advice had left us with long-term policies, some for 25-year terms, that were making considerable losses. People were tied into these policies, unable to get out of them without forfeiting even further losses if surrendering these policies before the full term. In legal terms, this layer amounted to criminal behaviour, a more serious, sinister type of fraud, where it is described as a wrongful deception intended to result in financial or personal gain. We can dress up the language, but that was the gist of it. It was so shocking to discover all this, and so horribly obvious that I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it before. Then you have a light bulb moment. This was a planned, carefully executed, cunning and deceitful plan. Grant had us from day one. 
He had deliberately engineered a fake company the same time as he set up Prosperity Management Consultancy in 2004. He knew exactly what he was doing. It wasn't an opportunity that had presented itself to him. It was this realisation that really hit us. And there was even more. Nathan then referred to the email from Grant dated January 2015, where it is stated that Prosperity will continue to be your financial advisor, but will operate under the license of a local insurance broker. Upon checking the DED license activity of that insurance broker, their only license activity was that of insurance brokers. Just as the legal manager at the insurance authority had said, Grant's new employers did not hold the DED activity for financial analysis and consultancy. In short, the details and description for Grant's employer's registered activity as per the DED did not allow them to employ any company or individual providing financial advice on savings or pension policies. The question that remained, however, was why didn't the DED permit Grant the license to practice as a financial advisory company? What criteria did Grant not meet? I asked a financial advisor. I learned that one of the reasons why the DED may not have issued Grant a license to set up an advisory practice was clear from his academic profile. Although no qualifications or minimum standards is required in Dubai for Grant to practice as an independent financial advisor, his most basic and historic qualifications did not meet DED's academic criteria to set up his own advisory business. The fact that Grant didn't even meet those standards for the DED license was pretty scary. Issued in 2004, the rules were no way as strict as they are now, and back then, he hadn't passed even that soft criteria. That revelation was quite an eye-opener, and it was not pretty. And I remember saying to myself, he is a fraudster. Modern-day scam artists tricking friends into a fraudulent relationship with their permission. That's the reality. In the wake of this, I realised that the person we thought we knew did not exist, The charming family man I had met was in fact a rogue advisor who had devised an elaborate plot to con me and others so he could pocket commission and fees and fund a lavish lifestyle for him and his family. And I am consistently told by other financial advisors that he's most likely not going to get into trouble over it. And they were speaking from years of experience from working within the industry. He'll dodge everything. They always do. That was what I was told repeatedly. This reality was the pivotal point because I now realised I was the victim of an insidious form of financial advisory fraud. You know, the one that you had read about and swore that you would never be foolish enough to fall for. The realisation that we were now labelled as victims hit hard, simply because of what the very word represents in society as a whole. Targeted, weak, defenceless, powerless, voiceless. I didn't want to see myself or think of myself as a victim. No one does. For the life of me, I couldn't understand how anyone with a conscience could behave the way Grant had done. Who would do such a thing, and to friends, all for the sake of making a profit, to throw us to the wolves like that? I'll never understand that. What I felt was anger at the selfishness of it, then betrayal, total betrayal. How many victims were there? How far had he gone? We supplied the narrative to him ourselves. We offered up everything, our life story, our finance, our relationships, our dreams, our future, and we were willing to go along with just about anything, putting our confidence in just a random guy we had met because someone else had referred him to us and for some reason we believed he could secure our future for us. That was our story. 
None of our friends and colleagues knew of Grant's setup because Nathan and I had yet to share the information with anyone. And for the meantime, we agreed to keep all the news we had discovered under wraps. At this point, although friends had shared with me that their trust and policy had lost tens of thousands, they were not convinced that Grant had done any wrongdoing. This was going to be a regular initial reaction. The thought that a good friend may have been deceiving us for decades was going to be difficult to comprehend for anyone. And I would have to think long and hard about how I was going to share this information. I knew I wouldn't get far on theory alone. I needed concrete proof. And I wasn't about to tell my friends our findings until we had that proof, because otherwise they might not believe us. But first, I had to go back to the police and relay all this back to them. And I needed them to help me get hard evidence linking Grant to fraud. Two very difficult tasks. First, I had to get them to review all the information Nathan and I had collected and agree that Prosperity Management Consultancy and subsequently Grant's employer had operated outside of the boundaries of their license. Secondly, and much harder, was to ask the police to request a statement from the DED evidencing Grant and Prosperity Management Consultancy were operating illegally under their business license. That's the hard proof I needed to open a criminal case against Grant. Yeah, I didn't fancy my chances, and apparently I was up against a clock. I received a tip that Grant was going to be leaving Dubai for his annual family vacation the following week. And then my phone rang, and it was Officer Salah from the police station, requesting to meet me the very next day. He had just finished questioning Grant, and by the tone of his voice, it did not look good for us. But why should I be surprised, right? The guy can charm his way out of anything. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Great Fraud Fight Back. Next week, we continue with our story of convincing the police to cooperate with us and to open a criminal investigation and file against Neil Grant. 